Good morning, church family. It is wonderful to see so many of you here today as we come down the home stretch of the epistle of 1 John. Now, spoiler alert, although we will be done with the epistle of 1 John in just a couple of weeks, we are not going to be done with the Apostle John for likely a couple months, if you dig what I'm saying. Because the plan, Lord willing, is to go right into 2nd and 3rd John following the completion of this epistle. Therefore, please feel free to read over and to begin to familiarize yourselves with John's 2nd and 3rd epistles as we will likely begin the epistle of 2nd John sometime after Easter. But I digress, church, because as for today, we will be in 1st John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 where the Apostle John's focal point is on the testimony or on the evidence that we have concerning Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Now, throughout this epistle, John has taken a keen interest in helping his Christian readers know and be confident and be secure in a litany of different theological issues. And in order to do that, it has been a common practice of John to share with his Christian readers evidences or fruits that they will see in their lives if, for example, they have truly been born of God, which was the focus of our text last week in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where in essence John outlined three different evidences or three different fruits that will display or that will feature in the lives of those who have truly been born of God. And thus John opened in verse 1 with, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, they have been born of God. Meaning that everyone who has been born of God, they naturally believe and confess and accept, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and verse 5, that Jesus is the Son of God. And John also writes in verse 1 that everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Or that those who have truly been born of God, they naturally love their heavenly Father and that they naturally love all the members of God's family. And finally, John closes with that those who have truly been born of God, verse 3, they keep the commandments of God. Because the commandments of God, they are not burdensome. And this makes sense because the children of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, they overcome and they have victory over the world. Thus, they are no longer attracted to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. But instead, they now find their absolute delight in keeping the commandments of God. However, it's that first fruit church. The belief that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. For that is where the Apostle John is going to focus his attention this morning. Because John wants his Christian readers to know that there are indeed credible and legitimate and trustworthy witnesses out there that boldly testify to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and thus the only Savior of the world. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning. Or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as testified to by the water, by the blood, and by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as testified to by the water, by the blood, and by the Holy Spirit. Thus, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to 1 John chapter 5. 
verses 6 through 9, and follow along with the text this morning. And if you are visiting this morning and do not own a Bible, that is okay, because we have one waiting for you, and it is located in the chairs in front of you. For that is our gift as a church body to you this morning. Thus, feel free to grab it and to open up your brand new Bible to page 1023. And join us as we hear the word of God together this morning. Again, we are in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Where the Apostle John, he writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how good it is to come into this church building this morning and meet as a church body on the Lord's Day. Father, it is an opportunity that we can gather together to worship and to glorify you and to build each other up in Christ-likeness, to sing in mind and in spirit, to pray in mind and in spirit and to hear your word together this morning. Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see your word, ears to hear, and soften our hearts this morning, to cling to the gospel, and to be enlightened. That is the beauty of 1 John this morning. Father, I pray that you help me, give me wisdom as I preach. Let me be thoughtful, convicted, bold, humble, But above all else, Father, help me to speak your truth to this dear flock this morning. Father, I pray that the preaching of your word edifies this flock and is glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as testified to us by the water and by the blood. Again, point number one, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as testified to us by the water and by the blood. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Now, as previously mentioned, John pointed out last week in verses 1 through 5 that those who have truly been born of God, they believe, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, and verse 5, that Jesus is the Son of God. However, as we will see today, John wants his Christian readers to know that our faith, that our belief in Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God, that it is grounded in three credible and wonderful witnesses. And thus John opens verse 6 with, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, in order to exegete or to interpret this passage properly, it is first critical that we figure out what the Apostle John means when he says that Jesus came by water and the blood. 
Because water and blood here could refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Water and blood here could refer to the water and the blood that came from Jesus' side when he was pierced with a spear following his death, both of which are interpretations that commentators have promoted throughout the centuries. However, the interpretation that seems to make the most sense here especially in light of the historical context of the epistle of 1 John, is the interpretation in which Tertullian gave. Tertullian, who is the father of Latin theology. For Tertullian, likely at the end of the 3rd century, interpreted the water and the blood here as Jesus' baptism and death. And the reason why so many scholars have adopted this interpretation is because it seems to take into account the historical context of what the Apostle John was dealing with concerning the false teachers of his day. Where some of the false teachers believed, as verse 6 seems to allude, that Christ came by water only and not the blood. Meaning that the false teachers, or that there were false teachers out there, who embraced the belief that Jesus was born merely as a man. Not as truly God and as truly man, but just as truly man. But when Jesus was baptized, he then received a Christ spirit, if you will, which was upon him throughout his earthly ministry, only to depart from him prior to his death at Calvary. Therefore, when John says that Jesus Christ came by the water and the blood, he seems to be taking direct aim at repudiating these false claims by insisting that Jesus, the man who passed through the waters of baptism and who was crucified, and died on a cross at Calvary as the propitiation for our sins was, is, and forever will be the Christ and the Son of God. Therefore, let's consider, church, the baptism of Jesus Christ to see exactly how the water testified that Jesus was no mere man, but that Jesus is truly God and truly man and thus the only begotten Son of God. For Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 3, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we read here, church, that Jesus, the second Adam, in perfect obedience to God the Father, gets baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And immediately after coming out of the water, verse 16 reads, Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. For the Holy Spirit here, church, gives visible and tangible evidence to the world that this man named Jesus is the anointed of God, set apart to bring salvation to the world. Therefore, God himself in verse 17 declares that this man named Jesus 
is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Thus, it is clear that this man named Jesus isn't just some normal guy who received a special Christ spirit for a couple of years in order to perform some miracles, teach some parables, and heal the sick. For this man named Jesus audibly hears God the Father pronounce to him on that day that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And thus John the Baptist, who has baptized numerous people in his life, he ain't seen anything like this. Because up until this point in his ministry, John only baptized sinners, church. People who needed to repent of their sins and be saved for their sins. For John never baptized before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And thus all John the Baptist can do here after witnessing what he witnessed on that day was confess in John chapter 1 that I have seen and bore witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Therefore, church, you better believe that if hypothetically you were able to call to the witness stand the water in which Jesus Christ was baptized into, oh, the water based on everything that took place that day would testify loud and clear that Jesus was no mere sinner, but the man who was plunged beneath the Jordan water was God in the flesh and the very Savior of the world. However, church, it's not only the water that can testify to this truth. Because the blood also has quite the testimony concerning the nature of Jesus Christ. Thus, at this time, church, let's consider John's second claim that the blood or that Jesus' crucifixion and death testifies to the fact that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. For Matthew writes in Matthew 27, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after this resurrection day, they went into the city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Church, the Lamb of God, the Messiah the one who takes away the sins of the world, was crucified on a cross at Calvary. And as we quickly see from the text, the day in which Jesus Christ was crucified, it was no normal day, church. Because as we read in verse 45, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. From 12 o'clock noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness. Not that it was a little overcast, not that it was a little dreary out, not tut-tut, it looks like rain. From 12 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as the Lamb of God hung on that old rugged cross at Calvary, it was dark as night. 
And then at about the ninth hour, verse 50 reads that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Because no one church can take the life of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ has authority over life to lay it down and to take it up again as he wills. Thus it was out of his own authority, out of his own accord that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for his sheep. And oh, when Jesus Christ laid down his life, it quickly became obvious to all that that Jesus, that he was no mere man. Because it says following the death of Jesus, verse 51, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That this thick and heavy curtain, which was approximately 60 feet high, was torn in two. Symbolizing, church, that Jesus was accepted as the atoning sacrifice by God himself on our behalf. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, we now can enter into the presence of God through eternity. And yet Matthew also writes in verse 51 that the earth shook and the rocks were split. In verse 52, that tombs also so were opened, and thus it quickly became obvious to the centurion and to the Roman soldiers who were with him on that crucifixion day that this was no normal day at the office. Because although these Roman soldiers had likely crucified countless criminals and crooks and convicts, they ain't never seen anything like this before. Because when they saw the earthquake and what took place, church, they were filled with awe and could only conclude verse 15. That this man named Jesus, who they just killed, that he truly was the Son of God. Not just a man, not just a good man, not just a godly man, but that this man named Jesus truly is God in the flesh. Thus, you better believe, church, that if the blood of Jesus Christ could be called to the witness stand, the same blood that streamed from Jesus' nail-pierced hands and feet and was poured out as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of many, Oh, the blood from that crucifixion day, it would testify, church, that Jesus, the nail-pierced man who hung and died on a cross at Calvary, that he was no mere man, but that he was, without a shadow of a doubt, the Son of God, the Christ, and the Savior of the world. Which takes us to point number two. Jesus Christ is the Son of God as testified to us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as testified to us by the Holy Spirit. Verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Now, throughout the Scriptures, church, we see that when an important claim is made, you need the evidence of more than just one witness to back it up. For example, in the Old Testament, we see in Deuteronomy 17, on the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. But a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Moreover, in the New Testament, we see in 1 Timothy 5, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Thus, what John is making known here to his readers in verse 7 is that there isn't just one witness testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. 
nor are there just two witnesses testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. But as John writes in verse 7, there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. Now, before we get to see how the Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, I want to first take a minute to briefly address a textual variant that you may have noticed in verses 7 and 8. If you are reading from a King James or a New King James Bible this morning, or if the Bible you have simply makes mention of the variant in its footnotes. For the textual variant here, it is called, and here is your big fancy word of the day, the comma Johannium, or the short clause pertaining to John where in verses 7 and 8 in the King James and in the New King James versions, they include the three witnesses that we see in our text this morning, those being the spirit, the water, and the blood. However, the King James and the New King James also includes three additional witnesses in heaven that we do not see in our text, those witnesses being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why exactly do we see this discrepancy between, say, the English Standard Version in which we are reading from this morning and the King James or the New King James versions? And as the late R.C. Sproul explained it, our modern translations, like the ESV, they have omitted or left out these heavenly witnesses because they are not found in any of the earliest Greek manuscripts. Thus, more than likely, these heavenly witnesses found in the King James and in the New King James Version are later editions made by a scribe and were not part of the original text. In essence, they were almost assuredly not the original words of the Apostle John when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the epistle of 1 John, and thus are rightfully not part of our modern translations today and will obviously not be part of the sermon this morning. However, what will be part of our sermon today is what the Apostle John wrote in verses 7 and 8. That there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And thus now in our hypothetical court scene, if you will, the Apostle John calls the Holy Spirit to the witness stand. And church, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is a pretty good witness to have testify because the spirit, verse 6 is the truth. And thus the Spirit, church, not only is going to tell the truth, but the Spirit also intimately knows Jesus Christ. For it was the Spirit, church, as David Allen wrote, who was present at Jesus' birth. For it was the Spirit, church, who was present at Jesus' baptism during his earthly ministry, at his crucifixion and resurrection and his ascension. For it was the Spirit who was present with Jesus in heaven and eternity past before the incarnation. And it is the Spirit who will be present with Jesus as the third member of the Godhead for all eternity. Thus make no mistake, church, the third member of the Godhead, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, he gets, he knows and he intimately understands exactly who this man named Jesus is. Therefore, when John writes in verse 7 that there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and that these three agree, that means, church, that the Holy Spirit agrees with the water and agrees with the blood, that this man named Jesus is literally God in the flesh, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. However, the question remains, church, 
How exactly does the Holy Spirit testify to this truth? And the answer is that unlike the water or the baptism of Jesus Christ, and unlike the blood or the death of Jesus Christ, both of which were historical events that testified to the true nature and identity of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, he does his testifying in you, Christian. For the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify the truth about Jesus Christ to you, Christian. As J.I. Packer put it in his book, Your Father Loves You, the Holy Spirit's distinctive role is to fulfill what we might call a floodlight ministry in relation to Jesus, our Lord. For I can remember walking to church one winter evening to preach on the words, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, from John sixteen fourteen. And after seeing the building floodlit as I turned the corner, I quickly realized that was exactly the illustration my sermon needed. For floodlighting, when it is done well, the floodlights are placed so that you do not see them. In fact, you are not supposed to see where the light is coming from. Instead, what you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are placed. The intended effect is to make the building visible when otherwise it would not be seen in the darkness. And to maximize its dignity by throwing all of its beauty into the light so that it can be seen properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. For he is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. For the Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste peace. For the Spirit, you might say, is the matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker, whose role it is to bring us and Christ together and to ensure that we stay together. So church, the water or the historical event of the baptism of Jesus Christ, yes, it displayed to the world that Jesus was not merely some ordinary man who received a Christ spirit, but as God himself declared on that day, that Jesus is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the blood church, or the historical event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yes, it displayed to the world that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that only through this atoning sacrifice on the cross can we be saved from our sins and reconciled back to God forever. However, church, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, placing the floodlights on Jesus Christ so that we can see past the darkness of this world and finally glean upon the perfection that is our Savior, our Christ, and our Lord. Church, we won't see or believe any of it for the only reason we can believe that Jesus is God in the flesh is because of the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit 
church, has taken us from death to life, from darkness to light, all so that we can now see and believe that Jesus truly is the Christ and the Son of God. For that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you, Christian. That although you didn't see the baptism of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago, or the crucifixion of Jesus some 2,000 years ago, because of the Holy Spirit testifying to the truth of the gospel in you, Christian, you can now see and believe and cling to the same truth that the Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify to, that God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, also that we may live eternally through him. Thus, to God be the glory, church, for his testimony of this truth. Now, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And as I mentioned earlier, non-Christian, within the historical context in which the Apostle John was writing during this epistle, there were those who left the church who were claiming and believing and promoting a belief that Jesus was born as just a man and that some kind of Christ spirit came upon him at his baptism, but left him prior to his crucifixion. And thus it was just a man named Jesus who was crucified on that cross at Calvary. And that is heresy. It is a false belief. It is a lie. And the reason why the Apostle John took this heresy so seriously, and the reason why we take the nature of Jesus Christ so seriously, is because, non-Christian, if you get Jesus Christ wrong, then you get salvation wrong, and there is no eternal life in that. Thus, non-Christian, honestly, ask yourself this morning, who do you believe that Jesus Christ is? Because in order to be saved from your sin and receive the gift of eternal life, you must, must, must believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ and the only Son of God. That God himself sent his Son, Jesus Christ, into the world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us. To sympathize and be tempted like us and to obey and keep the law for us. For Jesus Christ, non-Christian, lived the life that we could never live. A life that was free of sin, free of transgression, and free from any offense. And thus, he, Jesus Christ, did perfectly fulfill the law of God for us as the children of God. However, the Messiah non-Christian, Jesus Christ. He didn't just come to live the life that we couldn't live, but Jesus Christ also came to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. For Jesus Christ took our sins upon himself and was pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded on our behalf, for he was nailed to a cross in our place and died as our substitute, as the propitiation or the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins. And you know what, non-Christian? The veil, it was ripped in two. 
For God the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. And thus, three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. For he had defeated sin. He triumphed over death and now offers the only way of eternal life. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin. And you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. As the only one who can forgive give you of your sin as the only one who paid the price for your sin who died for your sin and then can clothe you in his perfect life in his righteousness and reconcile you back to God forever. Thus non-Christian do not believe the lies of the world that Jesus is some kind of fairy tale or fable or myth but instead non-Christian believe in the very testimony of God himself who bore witness via the spirit via the water and via the blood that Jesus is the Christ and the only begotten Son of God and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. Thus, place your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ this morning, non-Christian, and today will be the day that you receive the gift of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, we will close this morning with the words of the Apostle John from 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, which reads, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Church, we live in a world where we are quick to receive the testimony of men, aren't we? I mean, we are quick to trust our doctors when say, they say we are sick and need surgery. We are quick to trust our lawyers when they say that's not legal and you need to stop doing that. And we are quick to trust our mechanics when they say our car needs fix or it will leave you stranded. And if there are two or three of these aforementioned professionals telling us the same thing, well then ten to one, we are going to listen to them. For we naturally receive the testimony of men, don't we? And thus, since we do so readily receive the testimony of men, how much more than church should we readily receive the testimony of God? Since the testimony of God is infinitely greater than that of men. So far this morning, church, we have seen from the text that the Holy Spirit, the water, and the blood all testify that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. However, please do not miss this point this morning, family. For as verse 9 affirms, this is the testimony of God, that he has borne witness concerning his son. Meaning, church, as Daniel Aiken put it, the abiding testimony of Jesus' baptism, his crucifixion, and that of the Holy Spirit is God's historical witness that Jesus is his son. I mean, dwell on that for a second, church. The exact nature and identity of Jesus Christ, it is so critical, so important, so earth-shattering that God himself, the God of the universe, the God who made you, who sustains you, and who keeps you, the God who is over all things, through all things, and in all things, the God who is the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end, that he has testified to you, Christian, that the man named Jesus was 
is and forever will be the Christ, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world, that he is God in the flesh. And that message, church, unless you are still dead in your sins, it is worthy of your faith. It is worthy of your obedience, and it is worthy of your eternal praise. Not some shrug of the shoulders, not some nonchalant smirk, not some careless head nod, but the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world to be the propitiation for your sin, Christian, also that you could receive the gift of eternal life, that message, church, it is worthy of your all. Thus, be confident in Jesus Christ, Christian, and who cares what the world claims about Jesus Christ, Christian, for it has been testified to you by God himself, Christian, that Jesus is not some liar or lunatic or legend, but that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Thus, live like he is Lord, Christian, from this day forward until the God-man Jesus Christ comes again. Live as if you have the assurance from God himself that there is salvation in no one else other than Jesus, our Savior, our Christ, and our Lord. For Christian, that is exactly the testimony that we have. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body, that we cling to the testimony of God. Lord, let us not be deceived, for there are many out there today claiming that they have evidence that Jesus was just a man, just a liar, just a lunatic, just a legend. However, Father, no matter how wise or convincing or compelling the world may think their evidence may be, let us not forget that we have your evidence, your testimony, your word, and your spirit, which testifies the truth to us. Thus, help us, Lord, to be a people who are not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in the greatest testimony that the world has ever received by the greatest witness imaginable. For we have been given the testimony of God himself who declared to us that Jesus Christ is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Thus to you be the glory forever and ever father for the testimony of your son Jesus Christ. For it is the only testimony that leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, how can we not sit here and just shake our heads in awe and wonder that the God of the universe loved us so much that he has given us the testimony of the water, the testimony of the blood, the testimony of the Holy Spirit who testifies to us that this man named Jesus is truly man, but he is truly God. He is God in the flesh who can save us from our sins. Father, if there is anyone here this morning who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you call them to yourself this morning. As Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father who calls them brings him. Father, bring these individuals to you this morning, I pray. And for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ this morning, give us a confidence, Lord. Let the world say whatever they want to say. Father, we have the testimony from God himself. 
Let us cling to that truth above all else. Let us be willing to share that truth with others and have confidence in that truth. For Christ will come again for his bride, the church. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please stand.